Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are the brilliant George Stevens, Jill Abramson, Jane Mayer, and Fred Wertheimer. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Blinkist, in the show notes. It really helps make this podcast happen, so we thank you for supporting these sponsors. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now for our last listener questions of 2022, and boy, James, they have been so good. At one point, I thought, let's pick the top 10, but you can't. You have to pick the top 100, the top 200, because they're that good. So this week, Ken in Williamsburg, Virginia, says a Democratic minority can't prevent the election of a Republican speaker, but they might be able to influence the choice if they all voted for a sane Republican. A few Republican votes could put him or her over the top. Do you see this possibly working? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some chances. I wouldn't call it likely or or probable, but it, it's certainly possible. And, you know, they're going to, it, it could be a big mess. I mean, it really could. I, I you know, could see any number of scenarios unfolding here, but it's going to be quite a, going to be a, very fun to watch. Very fun to watch. And that is certainly within the realm of possibility. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah, I do agree. Although I think the, what complicates it is, I think you could get, uh, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 16 or 17 Republicans who who would do that. Um, but um, whether the left wing Democrats would then go along with it would be a would be a different matter. I mean, AOC voted against the uh, uh, the omnibus bill. So I, I don't know. But, you know, it's a, it's unlikely, but it's a it's a possibility. Um uh, and I think uh, I still think if Kevin McCarthy doesn't get it, I think I put my money on Steve Scalise. But that's based on nothing other than uh, a hunch. Known less hated, maybe. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, you know, not, not even even less threatening than Kevin McCarthy, which is really not threatening. Leon right. in Kalispell, in Montana, says on your show. On 1215, you both agreed that Trump should not go to jail, that he should be pardoned if convicted of at least one felony. Without stating why, the logic behind this escapes, Leon. Why isn't he be treated like any other common crim- criminal if convicted in due time? Leon, I, I don't think that's quite what we said. I think what we said was if he is convicted uh, and if he uh, is if he, he wants to offer a plea bargain for staying out of jail, which is uh, A, he admit his guilt forthrightly admit his guilt. B, he pay a huge fine. I mean, really a huge fine, massive. And C, uh, he commit to never running for election again. And D, as James said, the, um, the, the, the safeguard would be the Fulton County case stays open. Then under those circumstances, I think a case can be made that Biden uh, is willing to pardon him and ask uh, if the Fulton County uh, prosecutor will agree to that, but only under those circumstances, which would be much harder and much tougher than the uh, Nixon pardon in 74. James, am I accurately describe what, no, we, what we no, said? No, very, very accurately describing it. And, you know, I, I would hate the idea of him not going to the penitentiary because he really deserves it and he's under the same law as everybody else. But if this expedited the country exiting from this hell that the last six years, seven years have been 
I'd be tempted to take it. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah, I would. Not a very likely, you know, it would be so many guardrails in there and so many conditions. But, you know, he's he's not going to be in a very good bargaining position here because he's just stunningly guilty of multiple serious felonies. Right. And even under our scenario, James, uh, there are still all these civil actions, which you can't do anything about. So the idea that he is going to be, um, you know, free just to uh, roam the grounds of Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, I, I, I think it would be a difficult decision. But under those circumstances, you know, which is really tough stuff, then I think he ought to be considered. Uh, Jim in St. Louis, uh, he says, Joe, meaning Biden in 2026, worries me. He'll be 86. What about the possible solution of Biden serving 18 months or so in his second term and then resigning and letting Harris take over? Can't imagine that's illegal, uh, but is there any constitutional or political impediment that I haven't considered? James, I don't think there is. Well, the political impediment would be staggering. I mean, and, you know, what they would correctly say is, well, we got 18 months to lose all power and everybody would be, if they got reelected under those conditions, which is, would be highly, much more difficult than normal conditions, everybody would be sucking up to Harris knowing that she was going to be president in a year and a half. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's provocative, but I don't think that's in the real realm of possibility, but it, it does... It illustrates a point that I think we're all cognizant of. You know, we're six years away if he's reelected, you know, from where where we're going to end up. I mean, think about that. Six years is a long freaking time. Yeah. Jim, I'm going to make just a minor correction to your very good question. In 2026, um, Joe Biden won't be 86. He'll be 84. Uh, I identify with that because I'm just a little bit younger than, uh, uh, than Joe Biden, and I know how old it is. Uh, the next question is from Greg uh, in Decatur, Georgia. You know Decatur, Georgia, James. This is directed to you. You've always mentioned how a political consultant learns from a loss. Can you recall one experience from a fri- prior campaign that shaped you or taught you a valuable lesson? He said he loves to hear these war stories. Absolutely. And actually, the, the guy that taught me the best lesson was born in George at Fort Benning, the same place I was. Phil Graham, we'll run against him in 1984. And, of course, he was a liberal law dogged, and he was the Reaganite champion at Swiss parties. And, and he said, there's a man in Bahia, Texas, by the name of Dickie Flat. And wherever you see Dickie Flat, if you see him at the Boy Scouts or the First Baptist Church, he, he never gets the printer's ink from under his feet, fingernails. And every time a liberal Walter Mondale, Lloyd Doggett, Ted Kennedy spinning program comes up, I got to ask myself, is that worth taking money out of Dickie Flat's pocket? Now, understand, Dickie Flat actually existed he was in Bahia, Texas. He looked like you think Dickie Flat would look. He had, had actually had a flat top. But what that taught me was the value of a personal narrative to tell a story. And I learned that in 1984, and it was probably the most valuable lesson that I ever got in politics, is tell a story through the lens of an actual human being. And Graham was very good at it. I got, I got to say that. He was very good. 
And he always used that metaphor. And it was very effective in Texas in 1984, to say the least. Well, that's a, you know, I, I think that the point is so well taken and you've been very supportive of my son who was in a losing North Carolina campaign this year. And uh, you grow after that. But uh, boy, that's a, you know, Greg, you got a great anecdote. You asked for one and man, did you ever get one? So uh, just, just, just remember Dickie Flat uh, and the now forgettable uh, uh, Phil Grant. Phil Grant, right. All scouts of the first Baptist church. I mean, he touched every every touchstone you could. Yeah, yeah. Our next question uh, comes from Stephen in Cambridge, Ohio, who says, after January 6th in the midterms, who's going to police Congress? Are we going to have to rely on our broken media? Stephen, I know what you're getting at, uh, because we know that those House Republicans are going to engage in probably some reprehensible conduct. They're going to have totally phony investigations. They're going to make wild charges. Um, you know, you look, I mean, they're going to compete with who can be the most extreme. I mean, we'll, we'll, who will win the Marjorie Taylor, Lauren Boebert uh, runoff? And uh, Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs don't want to be left out of that. And don't forget Mac Getz. But I think the media... We'll do a pretty good job on that. I really do. I think they, these people have telegraphed uh, what they plan to do. They don't do it very well. We saw that uh, the last time with some of their fake hearings. And I think that the, 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 the media will do a good job. What's equally important is what, how good a job the House Democrats do. And uh, I was a little disappointed in the sense there was a big fight uh, between Jerry Connolly and Jamie Raskin as to who was going to be the ranking member on the uh, House Oversight Committee. Now, that may sound like inside baseball, but you remember Elijah Cummings when they tried, when they did that phony, um, uh, Trey Gowdy did that uh, phony Benghazi thing. Elijah Cummings just took him apart. And that's what a, a ranking member can do. It's why it's why the Kevin McCarthy gave Nancy Pelosi a great gift uh, when he refused to participate in the January 6th committee hearings. And I, the reason I say I was disappointed is Raskin won that runoff I would have hoped the leadership would have said, you know something, we need someone like a Jerry Connolly as well as a Raskin oversight. But over at the House Judiciary Committee with the nefarious Jim Jordan as chairman, I don't think that their chairman, Jerry Nadler, uh, who was up in, up in years, I don't think he's up to taking on Jim Jordan, whereas I think a Raskin would have. So I wish they would have done that. But the media can do its job, but Democrats up there have to do their job, too. You know, of all people, uh, Raymond Arroyo. So let me tell you who Raymond Arroyo is and what his bona fides are. He's the producer of the Laura Ingram show. Mm-hmm. It's a very big media figure in right-wing Catholicism in the United States. He's from New Orleans. I know him, his wife. He's actually personally a, 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 a very nice guy. But but his credentials on the American right are, are second to none. And he has said they better watch out. This, this, if they go into this circus, it can backfire easily. And I hope that they don't listen to Raymond Arroyo, all right? And I hope they follow the instincts and make complete fools of themselves. And I'm pretty confident that's the track they're going to go down. Well, I am too, James. And, and you know, it's because the you know the inmates are going to be running the penitentiary. Uh, it may, you know, it, it's fine if a Kevin McCarthy or a Steve Scalise says, "Hey, we have to tamp this down a bit." Uh, but the Matt Gatzes and the Paul Gosars and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Chairman Jim Jordan ain't going to listen to them. Uh, so, so I, 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 I think Raymond's worries are well founded. 
Right. And, and I mean, he know, he obviously knows the media. Uh, you know, he's on that right wing Catholic uh, channel, whatever. But he but he knows he knows what it is. And he's very plugged into that world. And yeah. cannot not they can't listen to Raymond because they've lathered all that people up into the Biden crime family. And, his, you know, Hillary's whatever you name it. And they, they got to they got to keep feeding them the, the crack. Because mm-hmm. too dangerous to come off of it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, our last question of the year uh, comes from uh, Elliot in Chicago, Illinois. James, you have been so on to this. What will it take to juice up the African-American voter turnout, Louisiana, Mississippi, and the rest of the southern states with sizable African-American populations? To, to a degree that could make a difference for Democrats. Is the Deep South just a lost cause, Elliot asked? Right, let, 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 well, first of all, it wasn't great in Milwaukee either. Or it, was, it just wasn't we had more than we should have had black turnout in the South. But the, the, the question is very well taken. Let's take North Carolina. North Carolina population, I, I, I could be off a little bit, but I'm not off much, is 21% black. Mm-hmm. So what you strive to get is your vote matches the population. I actually think when in 2008 was the rare occasion where, where black turnout was actually higher than white turnout, but that's long gone in the rearview mirror. It was 17% in 2022. All right. It, it, it was 26% in Georgia. All right. Where it should be 31, 32. And there, there, that is a problem, and it, it has to have to be a lot, a lot of thought in it. And I suspect I don't, I don't have the data in front of me. I don't know. If, I'm sure the data will exist. A lot of this is among younger blacks. Yeah. It, they, they just don't feel part of the process. I also think that part of the problem. I don't have any proof of this, but I don't prove anything else. Is the unwillingness of a large part of the Democratic Party to talk about crime and the profound negative impact it has on the black community is a demonstration that we're just out of touch. Just out of touch. If you you don't know this is going on in our lives, in our community, on our streets, and our our young people are faced with this, then you're you're goofy. You're just goofy. Yeah. That's something we got to realize. I think that's part of it. None of this do I, I have data in front of me. I, I, the Pew poll, which is a very good, well-taken poll, says 81% of blacks in the United States think violence in a community is a major issue. Well, if it's a major issue, maybe we ought to talk about it. Absolutely. And and it's blacks that are most affected and hurt by that. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree. Well, thank you for that really good question. We're going to let all you listeners out there into a special treat that James and I love, our Sunday afternoon Zoom calls with the best and brightest and most engaging. Four are with us today, Jill Abramson, the only woman executive editor in the history of the New York Times, the New Yorker's Jane Mayer. If you want to scare some sleazy operator, just say Jane Mayer's calling. 
Fred Wertheimer, who has been fighting the good fight in Congress for half a century and trying to take dirty money out of politics. And George Stevens, the Academy Academy Award winning director, and he's an author and playwright. So, wow, James, how did we ever get on that call with them? Huh? No, <laughs> just notice I, I stand in the shadow of giants. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> we're we're going to get each of you to talk a little bit. And then, as always, we do on Sundays, just everybody jump in, whatever you want to talk about, to talk about what's ahead in 2023. James, what will be the one or two biggest stories politically in 2023? Well, I, I think the biggest ongoing story, and you and I have been on this forever, and we actually have two experts on this issue in Fred and, and, and Jane Mayer. And I think it's the disgusting, staggering amount of money mm. that is in American politics and its insidious influence on everything that happens in American politics. And I also think it is a issue that is ripe for political manipulation. Uh, I can't tell you enough with that Arizona vote, 73% about disclosure. So, uh, I guess I'd ask uh, Jane and Fred to, to where's the best place that our listeners can go to and learn about this insidious, awful influence that has become so pervasive in American politics. James, just first, let me point out that Joe Abramson taught Jane Mayer and me everything we know about money and politics. But go ahead. Totally true. <laughs> I defer to, I'm going to defer to Fred because Fred really is the the leader in this field. So, Fred, you go. Well, one of the best places you can find information on this is a website called Opit Secrets, which has uh, all the facts about the money being raised and spent. It does lots of studies. Uh, you know, one of the untold stories of this last election is that with the country overwhelmingly saying we're headed in the wrong direction and with Congress at a very low level of confidence, this was a status quo election. Every incumbent in the Senate who ran won. 97% of the House incumbents who ran won. And one of the, there are a couple of major factors beside all of the other factors we know about. Money follows incumbents because incumbents are the ones who can do something for you. And they overwhelm their challengers in money. It becomes exceedingly difficult to beat an incumbent. And then in the House, you have this partisan gerrymandering, which has locked in one district uh, seats for uh, one party or the other for most of the seats in Congress. So looking ahead, Jane, playing change? You know, I mean, there are some efforts at the state level you mentioned in Arizona, which was which was done because it was a referendum. When When people get the chance to actually weigh in on this issue, they hate the corruption in politics, and it's bipartisan, which is one of the few things that both parties agree on, is they want to see less sort of big money capturing politics. Yeah. Every state that allows citizen referendums ought to have put this on the ballot. Florida to start with. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely uh, you're absolutely right. Jill, the, um, you can pick up on any of this. This is all, all free form today. Uh, the Dobbs abortion decision created one of the great upheavals 
uh, socially, personally, economically, and politically. Uh, still, still a big deal in 2023? Yes, it's going to be a big deal for, you know, years to come uh, until, you know, it's probably a long shot until Congress decides to legislate on the issue. But, you know, it, it it's a good illustration of, you know, millions upon millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent to reverse Roe v. Wade. Uh, you know, that was the apex issue for the conservative movement for all these years. And, you know, it, it's particularly outrageous because it's such a good example of, you know, a branch of the government doing something that clearly runs counter to what most people in our democracy want, which is legal abortion. Uh, So yes, I think it's going to stay a big voting issue um, and, you know, a real um, dividing line uh, between the conservative portion of the country and, you know, the more progressive urban areas. Jane Mayer, you're writing a book, I think, on the Supreme Court. What surprises in 2023, do you think the Supremes have for us? And, and is there any realization, or do they even care, the low regard they're now held in by the public? Well, I don't know how many surprises they are because they've become quite predictable. Yeah, yeah. The, the radical right majority up there on the court is going to keep knocking, doing everything it can to erase the 20th century, basically. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're knocking out one right after the next. But... Um, are there, um, you know, there are a couple of big cases that are yet to be decided. They've been heard already. There's an affirmative action case that involves um, one that's the University of North Carolina and the other is Harvard University. And they're both um, cases that were brought by a kind of a, a, a eccentric white right wing. White would be a sort of a little bit of a slip there. <laughs> right wing group uh, <laughs> that is... Um, trying to end the idea that you could have um, take into account race in admissions. Um, And it seems very likely that even though somebody else who's in our Sunday groups, Seth Waxman often, who very ably argued in favor of affirmative action in this case, that the court's going to overrule it. And um, so that's going to change a lot of things, not just admissions to universities, but also potentially hiring where affirmative action takes place. Um, there's some some major voting cases also. Um, there's um, Merrill v. Milligan, which is about um, whether uh, black voters can be packed into little districts, just single districts down in in uh, Alabama or um, and or whether they have a right, people have a right who are black citizens to have sort of uh, voting power that equals the white voters in that state. Um, Again, it seems like the court's pretty predictably going to rule um, in favor of um, erasing anything that sort of tries to ameliorate race, race racism here. Yeah. Uh, Fred, uh, you, you talked about money. Um, you, you, you spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, have for years. You have divided, uh, divided government on Capitol Hill, uh, House and Senate. Now, what do you look for legislatively uh, in 2023? Anything? Almost nothing. I think in the House, it's going to be an investigations Congress. Uh, what you can do 
and we did this in 2019, is you can set the stage for future legislation. In the Senate, for example, you can continue to pass the democracy reforms that came within two votes of being uh, elected, historic reforms in, in this Congress, and you build on that. You can pass those laws and be in a position when the opportunity to strike comes, you can go for it. But uh, we're going to see, I think, a role reversal in, in the 2024 elections. And much of this Congress, next Congress, is going to be focused on the 2024 elections. There are 23 Democrats and independents up and only 10 Republicans. It's going to be very hard for the Democrats to hold the Senate. In the House, just the opposite. The House, the Republicans have a bare four-vote majority, and there are 20 Republicans who are up who won in districts carried by Biden, and they are going to be targets for the next two years. Uh, George, Hollywood looks unsettled. I mean, Disney and Warner, Netflix, several months actually lost subscribers, raising questions about is uh, streaming the gold mine that people were talking about. Movie theaters are still struggling. Sort all this out for us, and what does it mean for the content of what we can see? Well, for the first half of the 20th century, people went to the movie theaters, got their entertainment. Then came television, the second half of the 20th century. Television and movies were kind of side by side and gradually being co-opted together by a few corporations. And then in, the, in this century, along came streaming and COVID and AT&T taking over Warner Brothers, for which they had no Warner Brothers communications, for which they had no aptitude. So right now you have chaos. You know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are finding their way of taking entertainment is changing, as are all of us. I went to a, a holiday party dinner and people were all talking about what they were streaming. <laughs> you know, that's just a whole new conversation. Uh, and uh, I have my own, I, I am a big screen person. I love movies on a big screen in the dark, you know, with popcorn and other people. And, I think I've been to see a movie in theaters maybe seven or eight times in the last two years, which is, and and it's reflective of what's happening. The Oscar movies are out now and directors who used to have successful films are getting just a, a, a minor percentage of the audience they used to get, notably Steven Spielberg, who has the movie The Fablemans, which is very well reviewed, but it's just not getting an audience. And Liz and I watched on our home screen the other night, Tar, the film with Kate Blanchett, which is really a very good film, getting no traction in theaters. And I had a personal experience. I'm a big admirer of uh, David O. Russell, who uh, made American Hustle, a silver lining playbook, flirting with disaster. And I felt I owed it to him to go and see his movie in a theater. It's called Amsterdam. <laughs> I went on Fandango and I thought something was wrong because 
all the seats were the same color when I was clicking on, but I, so I clicked to a seat in the 12th row center and it lit up. And then I realized I was the only customer. And I went down to the IMAX theater on K Street and had a private screening <laughs> Amsterdam, which is, is one of the pictures. And, and it's totally dead at the box office. And it's one of the best experiences I've had, uh, movie experiences of the year. And it made me realize there's a big question of whether theatrical movies, as we know it, um, are going to continue. The only pictures that people are going to see are the so-called franchise movies, uh, Top Gun, uh, the, all of the Marvel comics, and Jim Cameron's Avatar. Um, but the kind of mainstream movies that uh, adults used to go to are just, you, you know, you go to, the, the, you, you have the uh, experience I had with uh, Amsterdam. So it's a, it's a, the, the future is cloudy. I don't think any of us are surprised that George Stevens Jr. likes the big screen. I think uh, I think that came in the genes, uh, George. Do you have an early favorite uh, for best picture? Now, you know, I, it, it's it's so chaotic this year. I really don't. I mean, that you know, the Top Gun Maverick, which which I went to see. Kind of, I said I better go see this because everybody's going to see it. You know, Tom Cruise, the redo of his. Top Gun series. It's, it's in the conversation. Um, you know, Avatar will be in the conversation. The Spielberg film. George, who's making money on movies now? Um, not, not very many. It, it's complicated because a lot of them are made for streaming. This Glass Onion, the new, uh, a picture that was released by um, Amazon into theaters, or is that Apple, into theaters just for two weeks and as a courtesy to the director. But people flocked to see it and they had only, and they had to pull it after two weeks to go, you know, on streaming. So it's it's quite chaotic. Wow. Um, all right, everybody weigh in. No one's shy here. Uh, James, uh, what do you want to pick up on? I have a question. I'm, I'm put, put, a, put a group, and please don't tell me you don't know because Washington is a place of gossip. What the hell's going on at the Washington Post? Oh, um, not not much that is happy. Uh, the, the, the publisher um, who really did not have any newspaper experience before Jeff Bezos plugged, plugged Fred Ryan, is his name, before Jeff Bezos plucked him uh, for the job. And, you know, it, the Trump bump is gone. The, the one thing that saved and added a lot of digital subscriptions to places like the Washington Post that, that's now gone. People are much less, it's a sad truth, but they seem to be less glued to the news without, you know, the circus master himself, Donald Trump. And, you know, the executive 
editor is um, a new woman, uh, Sally Busby, who I think is a very good journalist, but she's taking charge of a newsroom that doesn't know her that well. And Fred Ryan has told her very abruptly that she's got to have big layoffs there. So needless to say, the Washington Post newsroom ain't too happy a place knowing there are layoffs uh, in the very near future. I was just going to say, they also seem to be hemorrhaging some of their very best people. I, I, I hate to say it, but um, the most recent one was Eli Saslow, who's, you know, won Pulitzer Prizes and is an amazing narrative journalist. And he's gone to the New York Times. And before that, Carlos Lozada, who's a brilliant oh, book reviewer. And I love essayist. Carlos. He, yeah, he I was going to the Times, you know. And so the Times is poaching some of their best people. There's tremendous unhappiness, it sounds like, over there. Um, I mean, and, and but Jill, I'm curious because I think you're, you're, it seems right that that the, the problem is partly that the that without Trump to cover, readers are are sort of dropping off in their intensity and excitement. But at the same time, the New York Times is doing very well, right? Because yeah, it's, well, the New the New York Times has been an outlier in terms of the newspaper industry. Throughout the digital transition, it was it was always doing better than anyone else, and that advantage greatly intensified during the Trump presidency. I think they went from something like two million paid subscriptions to over seven in those four years. An amazing leap and they haven't lost a lot of readers or subscribers but you know part of their success if you look is that I get a lot of emails from the Times offering new you know all access subscriptions for like a dollar a month the first couple of months so they're selling, you know, they're adding or at least not losing subscribers, but I'm not sure they're bringing in the, the revenue that, that they'd like. Although the place is sitting on a huge uh, stash of cash. And um, I, I would like to just share a, a general observation which applies here. Uh, Al noted at the beginning of our podcast that I was the first and only woman executive editor, the top editor at the Times. And wouldn't you know it, but the year that I was appointed and the few years that I had the job, <coughs> The place was going down the drain. There were articles being written that the Times was going to go bankrupt. <clears throat> you know, the newsroom was extremely unsettled. And now you have Sally Busby also taking over at a time when the economics of the place, the arrow is pointing down. And it's just a fact that women often get the top job at companies at the point where they're not doing well. Uh, and thus, you're kind of set up 
to fail. And I hope that isn't true of Sally Busby. No, I think it's such a theory. I mean, it ought to be something that stock analysts look at when the woman's appointed sell. And it's not because the women aren't talented. Usually it means that like the place is about ready to tank when they bring the women in. An ironic, an ironic byproduct of this is when you think of the Post as a kind of the cultural center of Washington, it's a, it's a, it's the only damn newspaper. And they've just, uh, Sally Busby, I guess, just fired, uh, Sarah Kaufman there, who'd been there 27 years. She's the leading dance critic, not just at the Washington Post, but in the nation. Pulitzer Prize winner. They eliminated the job of dance critic in Washington, where dance companies, the New York City Ballet, the American Ballet, from all over the country come to Washington. Now there is no dance critic at the only newspaper. There have been questions raised that Bezos has lost interest in the Post. Uh, and if that's the case, that would really complicate their finances. James was talking about gossip and the gossip of late, and it's gotten into print, is that Bloomberg suddenly, having yeah. told me at a lunch, just the two of us, that he was not interested in the newspaper business, suddenly there are rumors that, number one, he would love to take the Wall Street Journal off Rupert Murdoch's hands. And number two, if Rupert won't sell, that Bloomberg might buy the Washington Post from Bezos. Because I, I agree you know, with what Fred has heard. Everyone is hearing he's lost interest in the place, Bezos. Well, I think what that reflects, one thing I'm sure it reflects, Joe, is that Michael is bored. Uh, and uh, whether he's serious about that or not. He told me one time, this was the era you were talking about. You know, I said to him, this is 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I said, you know, why don't you buy the New York Times? And he said, you know, if I bought the New York Times, the first thing I'd have to do is uh, fire 200 people. He says, he says, that'd be the dumbest goddamn thing I could possibly do. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're serious about it or not, but if Bezos has lost interest, the Post could, 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 uh, could do a lot worse than having Mike Bloomberg buy him. His his opinion guy is already now the uh, op opinion page editor at the at the Washington Post. Right. David Shipley was just hired recently. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, this whole business of the difficulties in the news business, though, is is sort of we, we're beginning to see so many repercussions of it, including the Santos story. I think. Um, you know, the George Santos story of the imposter who, who faked every single, you know, aspect of his resume and nonetheless got elected to Congress from Long Island. It's amazing to me that uh, that the major newspapers only noticed that he was a complete phony after he was elected. Well, didn't some of the local, didn't one of the local yes. papers, though, pick it up? Yeah. One of the very, it's a tiny little uh you know, Long Island sort of, you know, practically a newsletter, yeah. a circulation of 3,000. So, James, what do you, is that, that bringing up the great George Santos, uh, what do you look for uh, in the House Republican leadership this year? And who's going to be the well, leader? I, I'm going to get into George Santos and, I, and I'll outrage because I, I, I have a different, but I think it's correct 
take on this, but uh, people should read Talking Points No More, Josh Marshall. He's been on this a lot, has a lot of background information, and did point out, as Jane so correctly did, it was a small paper on Long Island that actually had this in front of everything. Well, it's kind of hard. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to defend the, the, the times or the networks, anything like that, but with all the congressional races going on, all the Senate governor's races and everything else, I can see where it's kind of easy for a congressional race in Long Island, you know, to slip through. And that's obviously what happened here. Uh, but in, in the outrage, I'll get into it in, in, in great well, detail. Well, but I wonder why the DCCC uh, didn't jump on it uh, uh, sooner, harder, better. They, they knew something was up. Uh, you know, I guess they had a lot of races. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not excusing anything, but I'm just yeah. saying when you got that many plates spinning. It sometimes one will, will, will fall down on you. And I do think that the, the D triple C did a good job this cycle. And, but that they, they dropped the, but obviously somebody dropped the ball in. Let me, let me mention something here, Albert. This guy, the people of that district elected a person who does not exist. <laughs> we, we are uh, we're looking at filing an ethics complaint uh, next Tuesday when they come back, calling on the ethics committee and Congress to immediately expel this guy. And the Democrats, before they're done, are going to have to move to expel him. You can't not seat him under Supreme Court rules in Adam Clayton Powell case. But once he's there, you can expel him. And if anyone I've ever seen should be expelled, this guy should be expelled so they people of that district can elect someone who exists. Well, I know, but you know the Republicans will never let oh, that happen. They won't Which do brings it, me but... to the point of who is going to be the next Speaker of the House. Anybody want to weigh in? Come on, somebody. Look at Jane. Look at Jane. Jane come on, I never saw you. Y'all, come on, open your mouth. Who? Come on, Jane. <laughs> oh God, I, you know. Um... I'm, I, it's, all right, I'll go with the old favorite of McCarthy, despite the fact that he's got the, you know, doesn't have the numbers yet. He'll do anything to get them. I'll go with uh, James's buddy from Louisiana. Galise. Yeah. George? Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> and then he can buy the Post and the uh, and the Wall Street Journal and have real power. Um James, you have a prediction or Jill? I, 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 I don't have a prediction. I honestly do not. All I, all I, I cannot wait to watch this. <laughs> and this is going to be a civics lesson par excellence. They used to do what they did when we were kids when you had like a moon, a space shot or a World Series game. They'd bring a television in a classroom. All right. <laughs> this is going to be the greatest civics. Any teacher that they come back from, Christmas break, you know, January the 3rd, put the television in the classroom so the children can see what a screwball operation this is. Don't, don't, this is, a, as the rabbis would say, this is a great teaching moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Who's got, uh, Joe, I was going to say Joe Biden. Uh, what, what kind of a year can Joe Biden expect? Fending off investigations, for one which shouldn't be that hard because the House Republicans are going to totally overreach on everything they try to do. Uh, you know, James says he's waiting for this battle for 
for a speaker, I think we're going to have a two-year battle here between these folks. It's going to be an ongoing war between the right wing and the far right wing in the House Republican Party. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, already people, you know, you know, start to uh, start uh, putting down your chips on Marjorie Taylor Greene versus Lauren Boebert. I mean, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> that's that's Ali Frazier. I'll tell you. Uh, um, I remember uh, probably in the summer, uh, Mr. Carville made one of his pronouncements. And this pronouncement is that neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden are going to be the presidential nominees in 2024. And I, I'm just curious whether he still thinks that about Biden and where we're at in our certainty level that Biden will run for re-election. Well, I think I'm bright about Trump and I'm Obviously, Biden has given every indication that he's going to run for re-election. Uh, my view is his record certainly would support uh, him being nominated and re-elected. Uh, however, uh, age is a is something that you got to deal with, and you know he and his family have to think about that. And you can't think about how you feel today or how you think you're going to feel a year from now. It's how you're going to feel six years from now. And I think that has to weigh into his decision. But I, 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 I know I'm half right, so I'm not totally off the mark. Uh, but we'll see. I, I think one point, Jill, is that the, the, the rationale that the uh, Biden people gave, gave was he was the guy that could beat Trump. He had done it before. He was the strongest candidate against Trump. I mean, you can argue that, you know, certainly. Uh, but if Trump's not the nominee, I think James is absolutely right on that. You know, you bring another one in, even a guy like DeSantis, who's, you know, not a very attractive guy. I think Biden's going to have trouble uh, against a, uh, a a younger, more forceful opponent. He may have trouble, but that's not going to stop him from running. No, I know. But I mean, that's that's one of the equations you have to factor in. James, I interrupted you. That's OK. Yeah, I, I do think on, on this topic, I, I think moving. We've talked about this before. I don't revisit uh, trying to move South Carolina ahead of New Hampshire is some fear because, you know, Buchanan or Gene McCarthy, other examples, yeah. people run in New Hampshire and they do better than expected and it starts a spiraling down. And Biden will be challenging the Democratic Party. I mean, it might not be like a top-tier challenger, but there's going to be some vessel in there and it would certainly be better off in South Carolina. The, the point I want to make before we conclude, and I'm kind of invading on George Stevens' turf here, I... I don't really recommend movies or, or, or things like that because, you know, to me, the greatest movie ever made was The Bridge on a River Kwai. And they think I'm make that again. I'm pretty confident in that. I think George agree with that. But there's a, something on Netflix. And I, I, I generally find Netflix to be like whole foods for bad foods. You look at it and you say, this is great. And then you start watching it and you go, I don't know. It's not as good as I thought it was going to be. But there's one thing on there called Don't Pick Up the Phone. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm going to tell you it's very disturbing content. But I started watching it, and I kept going, this can't be true. But these people don't look like actors. And it, it, it it's really the extent that people will go to comply with they perceive to be authority. And, it, it, again, I, I, 
warn people out there, it is very disturbing content. If if you don't like it, turn away from it. I couldn't turn away from it because I, I, I kept saying this is impossible. And it definitely, and it, and it follows, whoever directed it did a good job of just letting the events speak for themselves. Uh, have you seen a, it, George? I have not. No, I'm writing it down. Don't pick up the phone. All right. It's very, you know, again, it's disturbing content, but it, it, in I've read articles and done a lot of research how people will pre- comply with what they perceive to be authority. And it, it's in the way that they, the police work and everything is, you know, takes place in Kentucky and Massachusetts and Florida for the most part. But it, when you, and you look at the scope of it, you go, Jesus, man, how could they, you know, pretty good. Okay. We will, we will write that down before we turn to any outrage. Uh, we haven't even mentioned Ukraine yet. Anybody have any optimism or pessimism about the next uh, six months? Silence. Well, we, we certainly saw one of the most stirring ex- stories of leadership. You know, for this, this fellow who was, you know, in a very successful kind of sitcom about politics in the Ukraine. It turns out to be being compared to Winston Churchill, um, you know, coming to the United States and, and speaking so skillfully before Congress. And this is a great story. Completely agree, agree with you. And if you think if you think of it in a certain way, um, Trump, who was an entertainer and became president, is like film noir to, you know, the joyous, almost romantic comedy, but now serious drama story of Zelensky. It's like black and white, uh, hopeful and horrible. Uh, But it's interesting to me that, you know, kind of as Ronald Reagan did, both of them, both Trump and Zelensky rose to their presidencies by being popular entertainers. Albert, on on on, on Reagan's case, a semi on, on on Reagan's case, what George? A semi-popular entertainer. <laughs> At a very you popular. Didn't, you president. didn't think bedtime for Bonzo was uh, was that uh, yeah. important uh, a movie? Uh, on yeah. your, on Ukraine. I believe that at some point in 2023, Biden's going to start pressuring Zelensky uh, to negotiate with Russia. Uh, Biden's always said the only way out of this is a negotiation. Uh, and uh, I'm, I fear that he will start pressuring him to negotiate uh, before Ukraine is in a position of real strength in a negotiation. I do too. It's already started, actually. Um, I think the the right wing's going to come in, and they already have, and start, you know, complaining about the cost and have an American first kind of fight going on. And that's going to escalate from this this Congress, don't you think? Yeah, Jane, it's not only American first. I mean, some of these right wingers, they like Putin. I mean, here's a guy who, you know, is uh, anti-LGBTQ. He's an autocrat. 
Uh, you know, he cracks down the scent. I mean, that you know, he's their kind of guy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, seems I, to admire him. I suspect money's involved. If there's one book that I want to read out of all of this, it would be a book on the Wagner Group. Well, no. I'm reading no. the story. We got to get these people out of jail, and some guy wouldn't fight, and they beat him to death with a hammer. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, somebody's got to do a book on the Wagner Group. That, uh, that, that, that's a must. And then, well, if and then, they do, they shouldn't use their real name. Man. Guys, every uh, week, uh, Carvel and I do an outrage of the week. We're going to do, I'm going to do one, James going to do one, and you guys can either do your own or you can jump in or comment uh, or disagree or anything. But uh, I'm going to start and just say, on Christmas Eve, my, my son was home with his little dog, uh, and he really worried about that, taking that dog out to do his thing because it was so cold. It was, I think, 14 degrees, the coldest Christmas Eve we've ever had. And Benjamin took him out and tried to bring him in as quickly as possible. Less than a mile away yeah. from us at the vice president's residence, two buses sent by Texas Governor Greg Abbott dumped over 100 migrants out on the street, including little children, some wearing only a T-shirt, on the coldest Christmas Eve we have ever had to supposedly protest President Biden's border policy. I mean, this is so despicable, it's hard to even talk about. Abbott professes to be a devout Catholic. He's pushed through the toughest anti-abortion laws in the country. But he's all for life uh, unless it comes to little migrant children who he's willing to put out in the cold and potentially freeze. Uh, he is a pro-life fraud, and that Christmas Eve stunt was really, really grotesque. James. So I, I grew up in a pretty religious household. I'm oldest of eight kids in South Louisiana, big Catholic family. And a lot of people say that God works in mysterious ways. Or God sends messengers. He's, he, has a, he has a unique way of doing things. And I'm going to make a case that they might be right. All right? And now hear me out. So, so God, let's just assume and put ourselves in God's position, and he sees all the things going on in the world and the climate and starvation and malaria and war in the Ukraine and racism and sexism and everything. And somehow or another, he looks down and he sees the rot that is the modern Republican Party. And he mulls on it. What can I do? How can I work in serious ways? And he comes up with a perfect idea. It's so perfect, it has to be divine. Because no humans could come up with something this perfect. George Santos. George Santos <laughs> sent here, sent here by God Almighty. All right. <laughs> Tell people what a rotten, hollow, vapid group the modern US Republican Party is. And you can't, it's actually perfection. And human beings are not capable of perfection. <laughs> I don't care what you say, you cannot come up with more perfection than George Santos, from a party that demanded to see President Obama's birth certificate and had, had a great pocket. Wouldn't they get two announcements? If he shows me two announcements in, in New York newspapers that he was born, I'm going to take him at his word. Where's his goddamn passport? Have we ever seen it? But he has the perfect manifestation. So uh, this holiday season... I know, you know, people are barren of getting anybody's religion, but it has strengthened my faith that there is a God and he, he, can, he can work in mysterious and brilliant ways. That's my Jane, opinion. Jane, aren't you proud that he is Jewish? 
<laughs> I, I actually, I have to give some cred to him on Jewish since I feel I'm a little Jewish myself since the wrong person was Jewish in my family. My my dad was a Jew and my mom's a Christian. And so I don't count as a Jew, but I am just like George Santos, Jewish. So those <laughs> of us who are ishers are, are grateful to him for bringing ish to us to light. That's the only thing you have in common with George Santos, Jane. Let's hope. I mean, I'm really hoping. That. Jill, Jill, George, Fred? Uh, Jane's glasses are not dissimilar from George Santos. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Taking them off right now. Right away. <laughs> I, I, I would just join with you, Al. Um, I drove up to Christmas lunch past the vice president's house. And to think that a public figure like James, like Abbott, can be so reckless and, and venal. Uh, it's, it's hard to mad, hard to accept that that ex exists in this country. Yeah, it, it really was incredibly cruel. Fred? No, I, uh, I'm with James on George Santos. As, as I have said, God given. <laughs> the people of that district elected someone who does not exist. He's a ghost. And they have the they should have the right to elect a person that does exist. So Santos ought to be thrown out of Congress the day after he gets there. And there should be a special election. But of course, the Republicans are not going to do it. Uh, and they should be asked every day for the next two years about why this guy is serving in the United States Congress. Do you want the next member there to be Jewish? Do I? No, no. I want him to be ish Jew. <laughs> Let's hear it for ish. Joe Abramson, anything on any of this? Um, I'm going to try and focus more on the, the positive end of what, what outrages me. But the positive is that, you know, I think this congressional term and Biden's, you know, two full years in office have been damn good. I mean, he, he has a really good record. And, you know, I think all of us on this call know that. But the American people don't know it. And the failure of the White House to be able to break through, I know the media environment is terrible, but to convey that story is, is really outrageous, I think. It's like their basic thing that they have to do. And, you know, you read all these articles that they're going to get it together and Kamala Harris is going to, you know, be, get better press, et cetera. But they just don't do the basic thing of just repeating and repeating and repeating the good things that they've gotten done. Well, they also go, you'll see them all over MSNBC, just as you saw the Trump people all over Fox. And that's that's pretty much preaching to the converted uh, or the, you know, the flock. They, you know, you're that's right. That's also, I mean, in, the, in the scheme of the population of the country, 
Fox and MSNBC still don't reach most people in the That's country. That's true. That's true. Uh, let me, if I could just add, uh, the last two years have been the greatest legislative accomplishments since President Johnson's in the 1960s. There's nothing to match it. And it was a combination of Biden setting a, a high bar and the Speaker of the House being the best, toughest, most skillful speaker in our lifetimes and the majority leader being absolutely brilliant. And that combination has produced extraordinary legislation in the last two years. Well, I'm going to end this by saying our friend Jackie Combs called Nancy Pelosi the GOAT, as in the greatest of all times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, I think we all can agree on that. And I think you all can agree why our Sunday afternoons are so special. Uh, we cleaned it up a little bit uh, for you today. But uh, and we always miss our dear friend Walter Dellinger, who was a mainstay of that. And Seth Waxman was mentioned earlier and William uh, William Woodson and Mike Tackett and Ann Applebaum when she's here. And uh, it makes for Sunday afternoons. And you guys were great today. And uh, let's hear it for Ish. And uh, and thank you all very much. Great, Al. Thanks, Al. Happy New Hello. Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Year. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Blinkist, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors when you do. It helps make this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. And we wish all of our great listeners out there the happiest of New Year's. We'll see you in 2023.